HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at surreyfarms.com or virginiatraditions.com. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with uh, two of the co-founders of the ECC, the Experimental Cuisine Collective, Anne McBride and Kent Kirschenbaum. Thank you uh, for joining us. Thanks for having us yeah, out. Yeah, excellent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain because we're actually pre-taping this the week before your large symposium on, uh, what is it, Monday, May 16th. Um, and we'll get to that, what that involves, but first give a little background about uh, these two fine professionals. Uh, Anne McBride um, has been all over a career in the food industry as a cookbook editor. Um, I actually first saw your name on Francois Payard's Chocolate Epiphany cookbook, which uh, sounds like it was a decadent affair. That was very decadent. Yeah. I had to test all the recipes. Oh, so shucks. But you know what? I don't really eat chocolate anymore. Really? <laughs> you got, you got your fill? Yeah. yeah. You had an epiphany that you had too much. Exactly. <laughs> um, you've also worked on culinary careers, how to get your dream job in food um, with ICE, the International Culinary Education. Institute of Institute yeah. of all these acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> um, and still work for them as uh, the director of the school's uh, Center for Food Media. Mm-hmm. Um, Kent Kirschenbaum, I just have parenthetically chemistry for you. Um, but 
explain a little bit about your background and how you two came to form the ECC. Well, the Experimental Cuisine Collective was initiated out of my desire to establish a science outreach program. I actually had been funded by the National Science Foundation for a research grant in bioorganic chemistry. And as part of that, they gave me the mission of talking to the public about what it is that we do. Um, We make polymer chain molecules. And I thought, well, gee, how am I going to get the public interested about polymer molecules? Yeah. (laughs) And as opposed to telling them about polyisocyanates or polyacrylamides, I thought, you know, hey, proteins are polymers carbohydrates are polymers and maybe we can get people really excited about chemistry by thinking about the molecules that are in our food so i um, developed a collaboration with uh, will goldfarb who's a pastry chef at that time at room for dessert and amy bentley uh, who was a professor in the department of food studies at nyu and we created the experimental cuisine collective precisely to bring together scientists, chefs, people who are interested about food, people who are just curious about what could happen at the intersection of cooking and science. Priorly, what was the parody? What was the rift between the two? I mean, were there scientists talking with chefs? Actually, at the time that we initiated our organization, there was this amazing ferment that was being established. And I think we were able to tap into that. And a lot of that had to do with these developments, these really incredible, exciting developments that were going on in cuisine at that time, um, largely centered in Europe, uh, largely centered in Spain, um, but also beginning to develop these remarkable Uh, offshoots here in the United States in New York and Chicago and places like that with people who are really bringing techniques from the laboratory, from the physical sciences and developing new recipes and it was a really thrilling time and frankly it it still is Yeah, I mean it's still happening and things are being developed but what what was the first technique brought into uh, the kitchen that was thought to be more laboratory than cuisine? I don't know if I have a specific answer to that. Um, I'm sure if you look at the timeline that is in modernist cuisine, um, Nathan Mirvold has an ent- a whole timeline of development of dishes, and so there's probably things in there that would pinpoint to that more accurately. But I think one of the first big type of collaborations, at least, even if it's hard to say which dish came out of it, is what Hervé Tisse was doing with Pierre Gagnier in Paris, these uh, molecular gastronomy um, collaborations. So we obviously don't use that term, and the people we work with don't use that term, nor do generally chefs uh, anymore. (laughs) Why Um, is that? uh, Well, the term has been... The way Hervétis uses it is it's strictly what happens in the laboratory. So it's strictly coming from science, and as soon as it leaves the lab, it's no longer molecular gastronomy. But it's been this sort of catch-all phrase for anything that chefs do that is a little bit out of the ordinary. So the public has started to associate it with sort of bad experiments. Um, So that's why, you know, we decided to not at all uh, use or refer to that label but the the system of collaboration and um, Hervé has monthly meetings in France which we thought would be a useful model for us to use also and so his um, his way of thinking and working dates back to what the late the late 80s in his case but they had these seminars in Ariche uh, Sicily which brought chefs and scientists and I think the last one it was in the early 2000s, and at that point, uh, Hessen Blumenthal did this sort of 
um, presentation that was really at the crux of what they wanted to accomplish was that. So that was really sort of the moment when the scientists also saw that the chefs had something to bring to the table as part of that collaboration. Yeah, do, you, do you know what Heston actually presented during that 2000 summit? I have a really terrible memory, so <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask if I don't have notes with that type of information in front of me. I don't remember. I think it was 2002, 2003, and I want to say it's it's in the introduction of his uh, cookbook. I think Harold Maggie wrote about that. Kent, does that ring a bell? Uh, it doesn't ring. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. No, <laughs> well, Heston's cookbook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll just call him on the you know telly. Um, so. This hasn't been going on for long. If you're saying that these seminars in Sicily started like in the aughts, uh, it's only about a decade in. Um, that was in the. They started in the nineties, okay. so a little bit, but they stopped in uh, early two thousand. Yeah. So do you, do you feel like this movement of and I hate to use the term molecular gastronomy or MG? Uh, do you feel like it's still uphill at a plateau, coming downhill? In in what like you know wavelength is it? I think we're reaching escape velocity. Yeah. Um, I think that there are just some incredible developments that have happened extremely recently. And I'll, I suppose I'll refer to the landmark publication of this book, The Modernist Cuisine, yeah. which is another great description for the trend, um, modernist cuisine, which uh, you know some people have lauded as being the greatest cookbook since Escoffier. And I, th- I think there's very powerful reasons to make that that claim so this is an incredible document and it's also an amazing time to look at that uh, as a text and reflect about where our understanding is and the the level of creativity that's enabled by by having access to that kind of document yeah uh what do you think were some of the more moving passages in the book i know it's like this what six book compendium thousands upon thousands of pages but there must have been some pinpoint things that were the most moving which are the 2400 pages yeah. moving yeah. <laughs> thanks that's yeah. a great question yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was be- I've been spending a lot of time with it and I can't answer that clearly because there's just there's so much in a sense um, I, ge- I mean I guess what I- the way everything is so approachable is probably sort of, sort of it's a global comment on the book but um, the way it is made it's expressed so clearly and in a way that is so approachable uh, is probably what has moved me the most because it, its uses are endless it's really you know you can bulk at the price but you pretty much never need to buy any other book <laughs> yeah. to have all the answers you'll need uh, you know in my case to write about food for example uh, so it's mostly that. It's the fact that, well, Kent was just talking about the term modernist cuisine. The way Nathan explains why he called it is, I think, the clearest explanation anyone has given of why they picked a certain term. Now, will it stick and will others sort of accept yeah. that umbrella? I'm not sure. But at least they, um, his definition is very clearly out there. In a way that Hervé is also, but his is a little more difficult to understand, whereas um, Nathan's is pretty obvious. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you feel like that was lost in translation? Because, you know, <laughs> Hervé and Pierre being French and uh, Nathan being at the forefront of the American, you know, uh, version of molecular, whatever you call it. Um, that's possible in terms of... Um the, the French intellectual processes don't always translate well yeah. into English. 
um, in a variety of fields. So I don't know. I think is also there's there's a maturity that has come with that type of food. And so to continue a little bit on what Kent was talking about, um, for me, it's almost a normatization of modernist or experimental cooking that has taken place where it's, you know, it's still climbing, but it's also, it's reaching new people who are accepting of it. It's no longer just a pocket of, um, uh, of people doing, you still have, you know, people like Ryan Ackett or Hessen Blumenthal, um, Jose Andres and his team, people who are doing just very experimental and very, very unique and provocative food. But a lot of people have also realized you can just use techniques that come of that and knowledge that comes of yeah. that and the creativity process and use that for your own much simpler food. Yeah. Um, so I think Nathan's timing is very different than Hervé's timing and I would say that plays a big role in that. And I mean, but also not coming from a scientist perspective, but coming from a chef media savvy perspective yeah. also makes a difference. Well, I think it's fascinating. You know, um, Kent, you mentioning poly everything, polymers um, are just proteins. But I think a lot of people, um, you know, we're limited at, at knowing my artifact, maybe, you know, what a raft is and. That was about it for proteins. Do you think there's a better core understanding because people are getting to the core of the science of food and that's what's making food better? Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't think we'll ever be able to point to any one approach or any one field as being the critical element for making great food. There is so many different sources of creativity, inspiration, and technique that I think it would be a huge mistake to say, well, what we need is a scientific approach, and that's going to answer the questions. But there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of the understanding that we've been developing as we take perhaps a reductionist approach or just think about things on the level of molecules or on the level of physical processes has really enabled some advances that are unanticipated and not because things are so complex but because sometimes things are actually fairly simple when you break them down that way just thinking about making a hard-boiled egg you know what happens when we cook a hard-boiled egg at 62 degrees at 63 degrees at 63.5 degrees celsius i think that that kind of approach it's very simple but it leads to some really great advances yeah. in taste in texture, and in terms of reproducibility. How do you boil an egg? How do I boil yeah, an egg? How do you personally boil an egg? I got to admit that I, although I advocate for um, accuracy and reproducibility, <laughs> when it comes to my own kitchen, I tend to be extremely haphazard. And I, I have very little temperature control at all. Um, I'm sort of limited by my, my uh, tools at home. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you how yeah. I, I make <laughs> an egg. How, idealistically, in a utopian kitchen. Oh, so what you would have is you would have a constant temperature bath with a uh, precise thermocouple that is um, attached to a device that can regulate the temperature of your bath to within a tenth of a degree Celsius. And you would set that bath to be... 63 degrees or 63.5 degrees and you would simply place your eggs into that bath um, and you would be able to confidently um, predict exactly what the texture is going to be of that egg there wouldn't be any guesswork about you know how long you need to have it in boiling water you would be able to generate the 
texture that you want exactly. Yeah. Well, it's fun. you tap on consistency, uh, you know, replicating. Um, let's let's think of this in like a housewife's perspective. I've been seeing, you know, the home sous vide machine, and now there's a home, I think, immersion circulator. Um, do you think these things are making cooking more efficient for? I wouldn't call them the layman, but uh, you know, the Midwestern housewife. I think there is this great potential for it to do exactly that. I think with these uh, pieces of equipment that are now seen as being exotic, we're probably in a very similar situation to where we were with the microwave <laughs> oven, yeah. you know, 30 or 40 years ago. It's like, ooh, microwave irradiation. <laughs> You're going to make the molecules in my water spin around. <laughs> I only <laughs> hope that was the actual pitch for the microwave, too. <laughs> You know, so I, and now we take our microwave for granted. It's in, you know, basically every kitchen, and we just throw stuff in there, you know, press the button. Hey, I'm going to zip it. No problem. I, I think that, you know, uh, other, um, you know, pieces of equipment that we see as being exotic now, like a, uh, a circulating bath or a sous vide uh, piece of equipment, I think could be a standard piece of equipment in our kitchens in the not too near future. Other things, you know, I, I hope actually will always be seen as being exotic like a rotary evaporator <laughs> uh the centrifuge i don't yeah. know but um you know it's interesting to see these kinds of things make the transition from being really exotic or having to be like really savvy to be able to use them to become fairly commonplace yeah well and if you think about the uh this home sous vide machines that are 400 dollars, basically the price of a kitchen aid can you really say it's exotic at that price point you know if you can walk into your nearest William Sonoma or Target and buy something. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think maybe it's not exotic. But here's here's the other side of the coin. It's like we're still trying to figure out what the microwave oven is good for. <laughs> you know, there there's still like a bunch of open questions about how best to cook vegetables in a microwave, and people are still learning new things about that. And I, I mean, I don't remember. Um, what happened when the microwave became... Um, I w- I'm from Switzerland, so I was there uh, when uh, microwaves became co- sort of essential in your kitchen, at, and I don't remember there being a lot of chefs involved, but I'm wondering if in this case, especially being in a culture now that is so chefs-heavy, if the fact that chefs are cooking this way makes the, the um, makes a sous vide machine more appealing because you want to do what you just saw on Iron Chef or something like that or what you're seeing in magazines uh, rather than the microwave which no one is using yeah. at least admittedly in recipes other than maybe to melt chocolate which yeah. I, I recommend yeah <laughs> I mean I think aside from I don't I haven't owned a microwave in years the only things I used it for were melting chocolate and melting butter maybe reheating coffee I felt like I didn't need a device for those three things and I can do those alternatively with what I already had but it's funny you mentioned seeing it on television because I don't think I've ever seen a microwave on Iron Chef. Um, but conversely, I've also never seen a centrifuge. Do you think that will start being more apparent uh, you know, in media, on television? What, what are the actual uses of the centrifuge in your applications? So we just ran into Dave Arnold uh, here on our way into the container, and he, he's done. He actually spent some time in my lab, and he showed me some great things that uh, he was able to do with the very high-speed centrifuge that we have in my laboratory. He made this amazing clarification of lime juice and also horseradish juice that he 
told me was not really possible with yeah. uh, with with other techniques. Yeah, so you don't have to deal with gelatin. You don't have to deal with the time of inversion. Like, just right. use pressure and speed and yeah. I, I think that they've come up with some other really great methods for clarification in the past couple of years, but that centrifugation is definitely a really great technique. I mean, we routinely use it when we're interested in separating out uh, subcellular organelles. Yeah, and similarly, it can—it's a great, great technique to to be to use when when you're dealing with uh, with juice. So I'm assuming you can't have an intern hold something and spin around really quickly to clarify it. Mm. Ooh, we have one right now. That'd be tempting to try. <laughs> it's like that dizzy bat race. Just, uh, maybe not the best idea, but because uh, I think that could be that could be an example of an instrument that where the price point is a barrier to wide use, even in the professional kitchen. I don't know, Kent. You probably know more than I do in in terms of those costs. Yeah, I think that initially we just begin to wander around the lab and grab these incredibly expensive items and see what we can do with them. And then we begin to figure out, okay, like, do we really need to get up to 20,000 G? You know, what can we do with lower speed? Could we develop a hand-cranked centrifuge that can do a lot of the same things? And frankly, you can actually get a hand-cranked centrifuge that can get you some pretty impressive g-forces so sometimes you just need to with make the right intern <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. excellent we're going to take a quick break and maybe explore some other expensive equipment to put on your covet list you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com we'll be right back following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Monday at 2 p.m., Snacky Tunes hosts some of today's most cutting-edge musicians and DJs. And while the requisite live radio fair is usually presented as a song here, a DJ set there, hosts Finger on the Pulse also talk food, sustainability, and green issues with their esteemed food guests. Snacky Tunes is routinely radio perfection for the music or food enthusiast. Again, that's every Monday at 2 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Here today with Anne McBride and Kent Kirschenbaum of the Experimental Cuisine Collective. And I just wanted to note again, uh, we're pre-taping this, but the symposium is Monday, May 16th. It seems kind of moot to give the date because we're going to air this the day after the date. But um, the ECC, it's open to the public. 
or people can sign up, correct? People can sign up. Um, you can just go to experimentalcuisine.org and sign up to become a member, and there's no cost or anything. And uh, then you get announcements every month about the meetings we're having, including uh, the symposium, uh, which we run every other year. We run a day-long program. Usually we have two uh, monthly programs that last two hours. Uh, and we have some programs that are members only. We had Foreign Adria uh, here in March, for example, and this was one where with just our members there was enough um, demand yeah. that we did not need but uh, our programs are often um, publicized online or the New York it might be in the New York Times calendar or the New York, the New York Academy of Sciences and that always attracts the public which yeah. we like to have you know to have non-members find out about what yeah. we do is I mean, always good you've had such an amazing cast of speakers I mean from Ferran Adria to Dan Barber Wiley DeFriends Michael Osconis Johnny Uzzini uh, Irve Tees Marion Nessel Natalie Jeremijenko and so on and so on. Who do you have uh, for Monday? We have Charles Zucker from Columbia University, Dave Arnold um, from FCI and Cooking Issues, Maxim Billet and Grant Lee Crilly, who um, are, uh, Maxim is one of the co-authors of Modernist Cuisine and Grant is one of the development chefs, and Michael Lyscon is from Le Bernardin. Uh, and so they each have an hour to present on a topic related to our theme, uh, which is foundation to innovation. And then at the end of the day, we finish with a roundtable of all the speakers to sort of create a dialogue based on what they've heard each other say yeah. during the day. Um, be prophetic. Tell me what you think is going to go down during the ECC. It's going to be fabulous. <laughs> the symposium to end all symposia. You'll be very yeah, sorry you missed yeah, it. Yeah. So I'm glad we're doing it prior because the ECC is just going to become this supernova after that day exactly yeah no i, th- I mean um in all ser- seriousness i think one of the uh, key points we hope to emphasize is that um which is often forgotten by people who get sort of overly enthusiastic when they see what they can do in the kitchen they don't realize that the people who are actually masters at being yeah. very creative um really have strong foundations so that's why we decided to pick this theme a little bit but like hey let's have these people who are really at the top of their field and have them say well it didn't just happen in one day yeah. and here are some foundations that are essential to remember it's good you need to know the basics yeah. to, to transcend the basics or to know how you can improve on them yeah i mean that's what these molecules are i don't think you can get any more basic than that so i mean talk about setting foundation get to the core the most elemental you know thing of food um a funny transition back into expensive equipment you know (laughs) so far from foundation um i didn't want to lose sight of you know we, we we talked about the centrifuge we we talked about rotovap really quickly and uh polyscience develops a lot of these very interesting uh tools for the chef and now home chef alike um the anti-griddle have you played around with that that much no uh uh-uh. yeah i i haven't either yeah um i have a friend who has one actually and even he he uses it periodically but it's not something that you just make your daily dinner on yeah but let me just mention a little bit about the rotary evaporator. Oh, yes. That might be a term that, that people don't necessarily understand right away, and it really embodies a lot of, of the scientific approach. Um, basically, what the rotary evaporator does is that it will concentrate something. And a lot of times when a chef thinks about making a concentrate, you're talking about a stock. So you would take some kind of extract, like a beef extract or a vegetable extract, and you would boil it to reduce the volume and concentrate the flavors. Well, that makes sense 
traditionally, and it, it makes sense practically, and it's been very successful. But as a chemist or a physicist, that's not necessarily the thing that makes the most sense to us. Because <laughs> as we really heat something up, okay, we're concentrating the flavors, but we're changing them as well. Yeah. And a lot of the molecules that create flavors, tastes, um, are temperature sensitive. So isn't there a better way to concentrate these things than heating them up? There is. You can actually boil something, not by increasing the temperature, but by reducing the pressure. Mm -hmm. And you are able to volatilize the components, drive off the water, for example, um, by reducing the pressure, by applying a vacuum. And that's what the rotary evaporator does. It spins a flask under reduced pressure and concentrates what's in there. And you can make fantastic reductions um, or stocks just by using the rotary evaporator. Or... Liquors and eau de vies. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Hydrosols, all those fun things. It's a form of distillation. So yeah. if you want to create something with a kick, that's a great yeah, way to do yeah. it, too. It's funny thinking of lowering pressure, you know, more towards a vacuum. Uh, I always related back to why airplane food sucks. <laughs> um, you know, because you're in this other pressurized atmosphere or eating on top of a mountain or higher altitude that, you know, flavors aren't as intense and poignant because it's. The exact opposite effect. Rather than reducing and concentrating a flavor, you're actually uh, at a place where your taste buds are tasting less, in a sense. Um, are there the? Is there the opposite too? Uh, something that um, instead of pressurizes, depressurizes. Uh, so the rotary evaporator reduces the pressure over something, and and the opposite of that would be essentially using like a, a crock pot or a pressure cooker. And um, you, you, you can take something like an autoclave, which can heat something up and uh, pressurize it. Um, and you can try making new uh, recipes using something like that. Yeah. I, I haven't heard of as many successes with the autoclave, but certainly the, the, the pressure cooker is something that we're all familiar with. And it's, it's becoming a, um, I mean, it's one of the big uh, pieces of equipment they're using in modernist cuisine but then in general Alex and Aki of Ideas in Food they use pressure uh, cookers a lot and that's been one of those um, in, you know something you can pick up for less than a hundred dollars you know even I have one that's probably 40 or 50 bucks I don't know that I and it was one of those pieces of equipment that my mom used all the time when I was growing up and that just became so passe and uninteresting <laughs> yeah. because we're also dangerous but now it's the hot piece of equipment to have in your kitchen so I think the it's allowed us to rediscover what we can do with something that is very simple, from stocks to vegetable parades to cooking beans in, in no times whatsoever. Yeah. So. so it feels like a lot of this is uh, about efficiency, too. I mean, it's very analytical that a scientist would come in and tell a chef, well, why are you doing that? Because you're lessening its effect and yield. Um, what other techniques have recently been found out that, you know, I wouldn't say we've been doing wrong for a long time, but that we've you know, uh, streamlined. Well, let's talk about efficiency then. Yeah. What's an efficient way to heat something? You know, probably putting it over a gas range and cranking up the flame. You know, again, good reasons for doing that. It's been very effective. There probably are better ways, and there are. How would you cook something on a plane? You're not going to put it over <laughs> a, a flame, but maybe we could think about bringing an induction cooktop onto uh, an airplane uh, galley and really cooking something on board or a submarine or, or a small yacht and 
the induction cooktop. We actually had a, a presentation at the Experimental Cuisine Collective explaining the physics behind induction cooktops. And once again, initially seen as being exotic, but now uh, the prices of those are coming way down. You can get an induction cooktop for about 100 bucks now, I believe. Um, and it turns out to be much more energy efficient. So this is great because it means that we can do things in places we couldn't before yeah. and we're more energy efficient and in fact it's a kind of a green way of cooking because yeah. we're and, using a lot less energy and it's funny watching restaurants trying to you know uh get certain licenses for hoods and open flame uh and i wouldn't say revert but go towards induction as a solution um that is not only you know this new hot tool for you know being eco and efficient but also uh logistically to open up a restaurant it's sometimes easier yeah I, I think the great thing is just having options i don't think we would ever advocate doing something high tech just for the sake of yeah. doing high tech but you know sometimes you do face constraints they can be you know bureaucratic and logistical they can be space constraints they can be uh constraints about you know where you are on earth and it's great to be able to explore these different options and to give people the tools for creativity and again that's going to be a theme that i i think will come about in in our session uh at the experimental cuisine collective symposium um that uh that understanding the chemical physical basis for cooking really provides the foundation for creativity and for yeah. innovations and i would add to that also that um it would allow that it's as important to know why you don't want to use something than why you choose to use it and so if whether it's uh, equipment or ingredients you know that could potentially um, change the way you cook or be more efficient or whatever you can decide to not use them but you need to know why just as and not just dismiss things out of hand because they seem unappealing or uh, because you don't necessarily understand them. So for me, that's an important yeah. element to add. I mean, with this proliferation of sous vide and immersion circulation, uh, how often do you see pe people incorrectly using those devices or using them just for the sake of using them? Well, I think in restaurants, particularly now, it, it would be hard to use them incorrectly if you're doing things by the book because yeah. you need to have a plan in place that is approved. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure no one is is using anything. <laughs> no, everyone's correctly. everyone's HACID approved. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I just um, went around and took a poll. Everyone's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure that uh, you know we're very very privileged privileged in New York that you have access to so many people who are who have been pioneers of using different techniques and equipment, and so you can sort of learn. You can start you know you can go spend a day with Dave Arnold he'll explain a lot of things to you um, but if you are in other parts of the country where maybe all you have is books and websites it might be a little more challenging yeah. uh, because you might not feel supported in your, and we get emails like that at, at the uh, ECC you know people saying well how do I start a collaboration with a scientist around my area uh, because no one necessarily comes out and say hey I'm a scientist I would love to work with a chef right now but if you start digging and having conversations um, so the point is that um, even if you're not quite sure how to use things properly, ask around, and you'll find people willing yeah. and able to help. Yeah, that's why we're here. Get educated. You know, th there's a lot of great tools, <laughs> a lot of great resources for creativity. There's a lot of great ways to fuck yourself up. Oh, yeah? You know, like, people might wonder, why wouldn't I want to take a big tank of liquid nitrogen onto an elevator? Yeah. 
you know, there are some very good reasons. You should find out why. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a specific example of why not to bring liquid nitrogen to elevator? Yeah, because if it falls over and it cracks uh, a hole into the container and you fill that elevator shaft with nitrogen, you're going to have a hard time breathing. There it is. Heed that warning. Um, yeah, I, I think everyone just sees it as, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors, but it's a pretty noxious, toxic smoke and mirrors sometimes. So, yeah, get, get a foundation, get a handle on these things. Um, speaking of, you know, certain things like liquid nitrogen, th- those very, you know, you know in vogue uh, elements, um, what do you foresee as new in vogue, you know, cooking techniques and elements uh, that we haven't discussed? I never really know how to answer those questions because I, I, I feel like it's not, you know, I'm not a trend predictor or anything like that. I'm, I feel like there's so much to understand to the today that I kind of like doing that before, uh, rather than uh, being predictive. Um, so I'm not quite, no, I don't, I don't really know. I think there's just so much to learn from a book like The Modernist mm-hmm. Cuisine that there's uh, enough in there to keep us busy for quite some time yeah. without thinking about the the next new thing. Yeah. Um, speaking of that book, once again, I've seen things like flipping a steak every 15 seconds to have not only the perfect sear, but distribution of a liquid. Are there some points in this book, though, too, where it seems um, not time efficient, even though the technique is you know, pinpointed. I was thinking about that before when you were talking about efficiency. And I think um, what happens that a lot of times the the process itself could be for one element yeah. becomes more efficient, but it's often for dishes that contain so many yeah. elements that it becomes hard to uh, really judge that. Um, I don't know. There are certain things where I think vacuum sealing is a, a huge um a huge sort of progress in the kitchen in terms of what you can do but then do you want to be vacuuming sealing your pasta dough or your cookie dough to hydrate it does that become really important yeah so this is where i don't know necessarily like what percentage of improvement do you need to see to decide that a method is better for you yeah. than another? i mean i am really interested in those variables like is there enough of a taste difference to yeah. prove the worth of a process well even just the way to make a hamburger in uh Mirvold's book the modernist cuisine i think it would probably take you three four days if you were starting from from the beginning to actually make a a hamburger according to the way he sets out and i think it'd be the kind of thing that you might really want to do once and if you're in that mindset more than once but um you know it's sort of like the same kind of process i went through when i made gefilte fish uh by from scratch for the first time i learned a lot I'll never do it again. <laughs> there was not enough of a payoff yeah. from the gefilte fish that I could get from Russ and Daughters or yeah. from the gefilte fish that I could get out of the bottle from Manischewitz. Yeah. But I learned a lot. And I think that there is just a real value in developing that understanding. Yeah. I mean, just doing it once is sometimes enough of an experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I think, if anything, that maybe that is the next thing to sort of really, not re-engineer, but really understand everything that goes on beyond, uh, in foods that, and... Uh, uh, tools like a pressure cooker that are pretty quotidian, but how can we really make the best hamburger ever yeah. or things like that? And maybe you will. D- I doubt that if you make every 
elements of the uh, modernist cuisine burger, you'll ever make them all again. But you would probably take some components oh, yeah. and reuse those. And so that's always valuable. Yeah. So sometimes it's the little things. Exactly. And that seems like true slow food, a four-day burger. I mean, like <laughs> the <Ooh>. new definition. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both for being on. Um, looking forward to being at the symposium on Monday. And being that you're going to miss the symposium Monday because it's airing the day after, still check out the Experimental Cuisine Collective for future inspiration and foundations. Annie, Kent, thank you again for being on the food scene. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And just a thank you to Jack Inslee, our producer. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Ciao. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.